Welcome to the Professional Services Pursuit, a podcast featuring expert advice and insights on the professional services industry. I'm Brent, and again today I'm joined by a fascinating guest. Blair Enns is the founder of Win Without Pitching, a sales training organization for creative professionals and the author of two books, Win Without Pitching Manifesto and Pricing Creativity, a guide to profit beyond the billable hour. Blair, welcome to the show. I'm super excited to have you hear about the work you've done, the books, and the types of insights you can bring our listenerships, many of whom are in the professional creative services space. Thanks, Brent. I'm super excited to be here. That's awesome. So we've we've had the benefit of having some thought leaders, some thinkers like yourself, some authors on the platform. And what I'd like to do is give our listenership a bit of the provenance, the start, where you had the idea of launching your business and then consequentially into the book authorship. Yeah, sure. If you're in the creative services space, then the name is meaningful to you, Win Without Pitching. And mm-hmm. maybe if you're not, it isn't. Probably is. I grew up professionally in the advertising and design spaces. And when I decided 22 or 23 years ago that I wanted to move to a remote mountain village in the middle of nowhere and I had to find a way to earn a living, I thought I'd become a consultant in the uh, new business development space for ad agencies and design firms. So when, mm. when I talk about creative firms, historically, that's what I've meant. But now today, there's just this blend between these types of creative firms and other professional services firms, software engineering, consulting, etc. It's just a mishmash. It's all professional services now. But my uh, perspective or ideology on how uh, new business should be done is right there in the name of the business, win without pitching. Mm-hmm. I was frustrated with the pitch when I was doing new business for ad agencies and design firms. And I had stumbled upon some successes. So when I became a consultant, I started to codify what I knew into a program. And then I launched that into the world in 2001. So that was the genesis of Win Without Pitching. It was a solo consulting practice until about 2013 when, interestingly enough, I discovered that I didn't know anything about value or pricing. I started to research the topic of value-based pricing, and I realized my business model was kind of stuck in this mushy middle between fully customized service business that would be ripe for value-based pricing and then a uh, productized and highly scaled business. And I thought, well, I've got to choose one or the other. So I decided to launch a training company or pivot the business into a training company, started hiring people and scaling up. We're still a small business, but today we're a training company. So I launched the business in 2001 and I almost immediately felt some pressure to write a book. And I think anybody who launches a knowledge-based business feels that pressure. I identify at my core as a writer. So I've always created content. I was doing content marketing via fax back at the end of the last century. Mm. So there was internal pressure to write a book, but I took my time. And one year in December, I forget the year, probably around 2008, I wrote a blog post called 12 Proclamations for the New Year. Mm-hmm. And it was in a new, it was in a new tone of voice. I've been a big fan of manifestos and books of aphorisms, Confucius, Nietzsche, 
etc. And I thought I would take a flyer and write this blog post in this like really big over the top voice. We shall like proclamation number one, the first proclamation, we will specialize, etc. And I was nervous. I was really nervous about that blog post. I hit send and I started to hear back from people that they'd printed it out. And some people had like type, not typeset it, but framed it and put it on their wall. And I thought, okay, I might be onto something. So when I came back to the idea of writing a book, I thought I would turn that blog post into a book. And it's since sold over 85,000 copies and gaining momentum like 12, 13 years later. Every year it sells more than it did the previous year. So it's a bit of a a sleeper or a creeper, as you might say. That's kind of the origin of the business in the first book, The Win Without Pitching Manifesto. That's fascinating. And one useless anecdotal tidbit, but you may have been before your time with the utilization of the fax machine for content marketing because, you know, in an era of VPNs, hacks, deep fakes, always spoofing and organizations having to be on their tiptoes around data protection, that still is one of the most secure means of communication. Yeah. And if you have a fax number out there in the audience, send it to me. (laughs) (laughs) And for, uh, Younger generational listeners, maybe we can, we'll, uh, we'll provide a diagram of a fax machine for this episode. But the book, this notion of winning without pitching, many of our folks in our firm who have the benefit in our listenership of very creative firms, probably firms that are extremely technical and transformative around implementations, um, digital transformation stuff, maybe creative with a small C and then we've got management consultancies, but usually there's some form of big presentation on the room or the virtual room and present your value proposition. And through that is a massive amount of work on the very creative side of the spectrum. We as Creative shops, as you know, give away our most precious commodity and value in great ideas, right? The pitch, probably a bit less so, and it's more about methodology, price, and implementation with SI shops. But everywhere, there's this massive notion of you've got to harness the team. You've got to spin up all kinds of materials, put on this type of theater that culminates in a pitch. So still wearing the scars of many, many nights and weekends and visions of vacations being a distant either memory or something that I couldn't attain living through those days. The book still has momentum because this is still a practice, but give us and our our listeners maybe some anecdotes of some firms that you know, maybe they've communicated that to you. The book has really begun to transform their business where they are winning without pitching and some of those types of successes. It really is a manifesto in the sense that I want the reader to read it, put it down, and be inspired to know deep in their core, there is a better way to do this, to know. There's not a whole lot of how-to in the book. Now, a lot of people have been able to extrapolate some how-to out of it, but the books I write subsequently, Pricing Creativity, is really at the how-to book on the subject of pricing, and my next book is really the how-to book on the subject of selling. But the manifesto is really designed to inspire you and to see if you, the reader, and I are ideologically aligned. 
because even the promise in the name of the book and the name of the business, it's a bit of a polarizing promise. So there are a lot of creative firms out there, large ad agencies in particular, and media companies who think, well, this is a false promise. There's no way that you can win without pitching. So they don't believe the promise. And then some others might believe the promise, but they don't see pitching as a problem because they're on a winning streak, because they're young, because they haven't accumulated the scars that you and I have. I always joke that everybody loves pitching when they're young, but just wait. It gets old quick, you know, (laughs) when you miss your daughter's birthday for the second time. Exactly. Or you have to cancel the Christmas vacation or whatever it is. I remember I worked for... um, one of the largest ad agencies in the world and my boss who was young and climbing through the company rapidly and he went on to great success elsewhere he said to me once we were out having a drink and he said so my wife calls me at the office the other day and she says your daughter has a question for you so my daughter gets on the phone sorry it was his son and i think his son was three or four and his son said daddy where do you live Mommy and I and his sister, we live at home. Where do you live? And this is late at night. He's at the office. So, you know, it doesn't take (laughs) too many stories like that to have you think, okay, how much of this, this falling in love with pitching, how much of it really is ingrained practices on the buying side and the client side? And granted, there's a lot of that. So we have to deal with that. But how much of it is me just falling in love with this, me loving to pitch and me willing to make these sacrifices? At the end of the day, I think whether you're a creative business or you're another type of professional services firm, the question should be this. Do you really have to cross that line that separates proving your ability to solve the client's problem from actually solving the problem? in the sale do you really have to solve the problem in a pitch in a free and competitive engagement as proof of your ability to solve the problem and i would suggest that if the answer to that is yes there's something fundamental about the business that you have built that is flawed because it is not universally true across all businesses in the category there are hundreds probably thousands of firms now who either a refuse to pitch or B, are pretty good at derailing a pitch. Or C, if you can't derail a pitch, this is my hierarchy of decision-making, win without pitching, number one. Number two, try to derail the pitch if you can. Number three, if you can't derail the pitch, try to gain the inside track. You should always assume an advantaged player, so see if you can get the advantage. And if you can be the advantaged player, you play that game. And if you can't, then you walk away. So there are thousands of firms, hundreds for sure, probably thousands of firms who are doing this, who are proving that this is possible. Still, it does get harder. The larger the agency gets, Mm -hmm. the less differentiated the business is, et cetera. That's a great summation of the challenges facing agencies. And and some of it really, the catalyst that drives this need for pitching. You already answered one question that that I was going to pose, which is how much of it is really self-inflicted? It's an adrenaline-fueled business to some degree. There's tons of Herculean effort to get a great pitch over the line. Consequently, how much of it, or do you, have you seen any shifts in the buying behavior of clients? Procurement, certainly the CMO, probably maybe some indications of Sobbiness or sophistication based on the level of client to whom you're pitching. I've certainly seen some anecdotes of agencies in market who say, we've had enough. 
We're going to use case studies and differentiation. If you'd like to hire us, we feel confident with the right fit, but we're no longer doing this type of scramble. I've seen some, even um, while I was in the business uh, more recently, some behavior coming from procurement around. We do compensate for some um, ideas and that sort of thing. But have you seen any movements afoot either on the self-inflicted side or previous maybe agency that's been addicted to pitching, consequently the clients, the buyer types where they're saying, you know, we're willing to maybe change this method a bit. Yeah. I've seen lots of shift on that. Of course, there's a selection bias, right? These are the firms that we're working with. Some of them get out of the free pitching business altogether. Some of them craft a policy that says we will never pitch again. Some of them craft that policy and then push it out into the world one of those firms is across the pond in London, and I've had Julie Cohen, the founder and CEO of that agency, on one of my podcasts. I have two podcasts, one on the obscure niche topic of marketing procurement. So hmm. she's come Thrilling. on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Said nobody ever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she's come on that and talked about it. And I've been on a podcast that she hosted for called CEO Matters for the Drum, where she's talking about it as well. And it's not something that I advocate necessarily, but she felt so strongly about the psychological damage of pitching. And she said, one of our core values is psychological safety. And we, how, can we, how can we hold that as a core value and put these people through this like late night trauma, all of this stuff? So she just one day decided, I'd worked with her for a day. And then a little while later, she just said, you know what? We're never pitching again. We're putting on our website. We're leading with this. You can go find either of those podcasts. Just search Julie Cohen in your podcast player my podcast is called 20% The Marketing Procurement Podcast. So that's a great example of somebody going all the way. A, we're never doing it again. B, I'm being very public about the fact that we're never doing it again. And you can listen to her talk about how that has transformed the culture of her firm. So there's that example. And then there are a lot of just quieter ones where people, like I say, I don't think it's necessary to say that you never pitch but still never pitch is how I would put it. We're not going to have the time to get into this, but you can deftly navigate a pitch process where you can push back and ask for concessions, which is your way of determining whether or not you have achieved the advantaged player position in the relationship. So if you're the advantaged player and you can get some concessions granted to you, then you should see that as an invitation to proceed, but you keep trying to change the rules in your favor. And I would say you draw a line at giving away free thinking. And there are different ways to combat that. If you are the advantaged player and the client does want to get a sense of, well, look, well what, what, what would you do? What would the campaign be? What are the ideas? And it's natural for them to ask. I think buying creativity is a little bit like a drug deal where you, the dealer, you say, I got some crazy shit and it's going to mess you up. Is this what you're looking for? And the client says, yeah, yeah, I want some crazy shit. I, wa I want it to mess. I want some exciting. I want us to be pushed, et cetera. But it's a little bit scary. Like, how crazy is it? Can I just try a little bit of it before I buy? I think it's the same dynamics. So I think you don't have to do a hard and fast no. We never participate in a pitch. We'll see you later. I think if you're asking for behavioral concessions to see if you can get the advantaged player position, then one of the concessions would be, okay, when it comes to the meeting, we're not going to walk in with free ideas. You're going to have to pay us for that. And we could talk about that as well. That's a great way to derail a pitch. If you are the advantaged player, effectively say to the client, listen, break off a little bit of time, a little bit of your budget. 
Let's take a small first step together. Let's explore what it's like to work with each other. So that's a way you can derail the pitch. But you can navigate the complexities of a pitch and derail it or get the rules changed in your favor so it's clear that you are in the power position without having to do a hard and fast no, we never pitch. So there's a lot of subtlety involved. It's not this binary it's a pitch-based business development approach or it's a pitch-free based business development approach. There's a lot of subtlety in between. I'm struck listening to you and this theme you've brought up a few times around the preferred or the biased or the advantaged partner. What was the term you used? The advantaged player. The advantaged player. And you and I have, um, we've crossed paths a few times with uh, Mirror New Business, of course, and then we shared a I think a LinkedIn live webinar, um, yourself, Tim Williams, myself with the uh, SOTA, the Society of Digital Agency folks. So some of these names will be familiar, but I remember my first ever structured new business training forum. And I think it was Marin and it's back in, it was probably 2007 or eight, but Lori Coots, who was the um, Shia Day lead, talked about her experience pitching Apple And that when they got there, and essentially it was the theater, and here's our ideas, she already knew they'd essentially won. It was that age-old, don't ask a question that you don't know the answer to already notion. And she said, you know, we had mapped something like 150 points of infiltration within the client before we really set foot on the pitch floor. We weren't putting anything forward that was, it was surprising, it was delightful, and of course it's, it was culture shifting, but they'd already essentially won. Is that is that when you say that advantaged player, that might be one aspect of it, that infiltration. You've broken through the barriers. You've asked the questions. Yeah. You're not afraid to push back. You're talking to the right people. Right. And a lot of these pitches say you're not allowed to talk to the decision makers. Access to senior decision makers when you're told access is not allowed, that is a sizable behavioral concession. I love that term, What 150 points of infiltration. But I've done a small study on this. Any behavioral concession is a sign that your odds of winning a pitch go from approximately 1 over 2N, with N being the number of firms under consideration, to greater than 1 in 2. Just any small behavioral concession where they say, okay, we'll do this for you, and they don't do it for the other participants. Like sharing information that they haven't shared with others. Access to senior decision makers when you're told access is not allowed, that would be a considerable behavioral concession. Your odds in that case go to almost 9 out of 10, your odds of winning. So it's not a really thorough study, but it's definitely given some support to what I've seen for the last 20 years. We think new business is a numbers game. We think, okay, all these competitions that we enter, there's zero sum, winner take all, there's no prize for second place. We think we enter enough competitions and we will win our fair share. So we enter 100 competitions. Let's say there's three competitors, four players in every competition. Our odds of winning are 25%. We're going to win 25 out of those 100. Well, it's not that straightforward. You could play that game. But the alternative game to play is you enter 100 competitions and very early on, you try to get the rules changed in your favor, even slightly. You try to get a behavioral concession granted to you. If you just play those games, you're more likely to win greater than 50% of them. 
So let's say you can't get a behavioral concession granted to you 50% of the time and 50% of the time you can. Let's just round down a little bit and say, now you win 50% of those. So now you're winning the same percentage, 25%, but you're entering half the games. So you've cut your workload in half. You've cut your cost in half. In fact, you've cut your workload and cost even greater than by 50% because as part of the concessions, you're asking the client to basically waive the requirement to do work for free. So now your workload is 15, 20% of what it was before, and you're still winning the same amount. So that's how I think about it is there's two different ways to play this game. There's the way everybody's playing it, which is the straight numbers game. And then there's the alternative way where you're trying to game the system, get the rules changed in your favor by extracting a behavioral concession. Start with a small one, ask for a larger one. There's probably a little bit of causation here, but I can't prove it. It's largely correlative. What I mean by that is if you ask for a behavioral concession and it's granted to you, you should view that as a sign that you are being treated differently because they see you as different. They see you as meaningfully different. You ask for a behavioral concession and you're the fourth bid. You're one in a sea of many. You're not seen as meaningfully different. You're not going to get anything granted to you. It's a really good test of how you are viewed in the eyes of the client. That's fascinating. A great, great insight for our firms we we interact with. And some really great lessons, not just for the creative shops that are on this that end of the spectrum. I mean, we see this in software dealing with procurement all the time. Of course, wanting to have that interaction with, in this parlance, we would call that the economic buyer, the person who is making the decision that's meaningful for their firm and career in, in a firm selection, in our case, a platform, if you're software. If you're a hybrid, it could be a mixture of both. But just doing that alone, I bet, would have profound impact on an agency, a firm, a consultancy, an SI who's dipping their toe into this restructuring. So that's a great insight. I want to pivot a little bit. We work with and partner with a firm and market that's run this longitudinal study for many, many years. They're called the Service Performance Insight Practice, and they have a great data set that spans hundreds, if not thousands, of service firms. So it's everything from the creative agencies that we just discussed all the way through really niche specialty shops, uh, consulting, big management consulting, embedded services orgs, and they track different metrics that are indicative of health and maturity. You're an ascendant consultancy. You have a really great core bit of founding leadership. Maybe you're known for a specific client category, a specific discipline. If you're in the software space, it's about a specific type of platform or expertise. And you're selling and probably having success based on that expertise, knowledge, differentiation. Many of those would be in terms of operations and structure and maturity very early. And we call that heroic maturity phase, right? You're getting the client work out the door. You're digesting and intaking some pitches, some, some requests, some RFPs. You've got someone maybe who's navigating a bit of a new business process, but it's a bit painful to get everything done. And you've got to build a little bit of critical mass. And of course, I've always had this contention that as you ascend, good operations and services really help build the conditions for success for new business. But 
Put yourself in the shoes of that, and I don't know if you think this is analogous, but this heroic maturity phase in agencies of your books, you know, The Win Without Pitching or The Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour, the concepts in there, I mean, where do you think it's most applicable to a firm that's beginning and it's in their ascendancy? Is it to get those great qualification, behavioral changes, rigor around new business, because that's going to fuel your growth, or is it around pricing differentiation and building the framework around how you're going to bring your service to market? We could spend a lot of time on this because that model parallels a little bit. I would overlay my model of the inefficiency problem. I've invented a word by combining the words innovation and efficiency. So there's an inefficiency principle and a problem. The inefficiency principle states that innovation and efficiency are mutually opposable goals. You cannot increase one without decreasing the other. The inefficiency problem is to be ignorant of the principle and to think that you can innovate more efficiently. You can't. And so that heroic stage, of it's the beginning. In the beginning, a creative firm is chaos, as most new businesses are. Like a startup is chaos. It's late nights. There are no systems, as the SPI model implies. It's the heroic contributions of the individual, of the rugged individuals. And then if the organization succeeds, the longer it's in business, as it continues to grow, it has to add the efficiencies that turn this chaos, the potential that's in the chaos, into something that's valuable to both the market and to the organization. So the clients are paying for it and it's profitable. And the lifespan of an organization, it tends from chaos on one end to efficiency at the other end. The innovation is in the chaos. Innovation is inherent in chaos. And as you apply more and more efficiencies, you give up some of that innovation. In the first phase or so, or even the first phases, you're happy to make that trade. The first few hires that you start to hire real adults, like your CFO, your first finance person is the first adult in the room in a creative firm, right? You have all these creative brains who will not be constrained by systems, processes, software, etc. They're making it up as they go along. The success of the business is in the genius of their creativity. It's in what's in their heads. They get validation. They start to grow. They hire the first grown-up. That person is a pained minority in this business. It's like, what are you guys doing here? And it's if it weren't for that person and the people that they hire, that chaos would not be translated into real-life profit and market value. So as the organization grows, there's more and more efficiency seekers are added. And as you keep scaling up, at some point, creative firms get large enough they probably never realize until they're hit in the head with this principle and problem, and they'll reject it at first. They'll think of lots of reasons why they can prove that this inefficiency problem isn't real, but if you think long enough on it, you'll see that it is. At some point, the majority class is the efficiency seekers. So think of in the advertising agency business, most of the world's ad agencies are owned by one of four, five, or six global holding companies. These are efficiency-seeking entities. And the chaos, is, so efficiency is like is stripping out waste effectively, right? But it's hard to be creative. It's hard to be innovative without waste. The great thing about the chaos, nobody was holding those founders responsible, really. They had the freedom to iterate. They had the freedom to fail. 
they had the freedom to think about problems differently, etc. But this becomes a cultural issue. Over time, the culture of the organization shifts from chaotic but innovative to efficient. And then when it's time to innovate, not only has the organization lost the ability to innovate because all the real innovators have left, they will not be constrained by these systems, they find that the culture won't allow it because the culture says this is what we tolerate around here and a culture of efficiency does not tolerate waste. Now, I'm talking in terms of extremes, right? And I will get back to answering your question. And it's not like efficiency is bad and it's not like chaos is bad. Both of these things are good. And as you grow, I think it's like entropy or it's like the need to battle entropy. As an organization gets larger, more and more of the resources are consumed by this efficiency seeking, keeping everything orderly. But then you're left with this culture of like, how do we innovate? So that's the multi-trillion dollar question is, why is it that large organizations find it hard to be innovative? And there are some examples that are able to buck that trend, and we could talk about that, but that's for another day. Back to your question. So the win without pitching manifesto tends to appeal to that heroic stage, the chaotic, mm-hmm. the early stage. Sure. Because they're, they're feeling the, a ton of pain, They're feeling pain and they're still at the point in the business where it's young enough, it's small enough, they can change things on a dime. They can make a decision, right? They can make a decision. And I've heard lots of stories of people have read that book, put it down, got an email from somebody yesterday, completely changed the trajectory of their business of what they decided they would and would not do to win new business, a whole new set of standards, beliefs, and out of that behaviors and how they behave, this empowerment to stand up for themselves. So that really resonates with the smaller firm, the owner-operated firm. Now, Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour, it's a here's how-to book on the subject of pricing. So the independent firms hire us for sales training, so to bring to bear the frameworks that are implied but not explicitly stated in the Win Without Pitching Manifesto. The large firms, the large up-to-hold co-owned but the largest independents, they hire us to come in and do pricing training. And then we do pricing training, and I look at their new business efforts, and I say, you know, we could fix that too. I'm a big believer that you reinvent the firm one new client at a time. And I think that's why working on new business is so important. You have this strategic vision of what you want the firm to be in three, four, five years, and then every new client should be a step towards, and if it's not a step toward, then it's a step away from that strategic vision. So with every new client, you can show up a new way, new attitudes, new behaviors, new prices. So I say to these large firms, you know, we could fix that problem for you too, but really we can't. Because it's not that we can't, but it's almost an intractable problem. Because in a large ad agency, there is this pitch industrial complex. The entire new business function, teams of people are built around the pitch. One of the largest ad agencies in the world suddenly decided that we're never going to pitch. There are dedicated new business people who have risen through the ranks and earned the right to have these jobs who are not going to switch their approach. There are people dedicated to pitches. There are people dedicated to RFP responses and proposal writing, et cetera, et cetera. That's really hard to change. So to answer your question, early stage firms tend to be enamored with and moved by 
the principles in the Win Without Pitching Manifesto around who are we and how are we going to show up. And then larger, more mature firms are more interested in the specific application of pricing and exploring various pricing models. No, that's great. And it's a great summary. We're going to recap both of the books at the bottom of the broadcast, and we'll also have them as links where users can get them. You know, this has been a fascinating discussion. When we talk about value and pricing, we're seeing this from our partner firms, uh, more focus on pricing components, not the billable hour model. Tim famously, Tim Williams, one of your contemporaries famously says, it's an economic model we gave to the client, says that many times that we have to sort of claw back. So we see that trend. I just came from here. We're recording here prior to Memorial Day weekend, 2023. And I just came from Marin and, and there were a lot of firms moving away from simply quoting man hour pricing, give the client the statement of work and we're off to the races and more around nascent value, meaning it's a fixed price. We've built in some appropriate margin with what we think value can be to some more sophisticated models. Like we want a share of the bottom line and how this is moving the business, which is more sophisticated value pricing. But along with all that, here we are in this period of economic stasis, right? Everyone's kind of waiting. It seems like forever now for the recession that may or may not come. Be that as it may, there is bumpiness in the economy, bit of softness. We don't have that torrid growth. Though conversely, I think that the agency space, again, seems remarkably resilient. There are clients buying. There are pitches and wins being transacted. What advice in parting would you have for that mid-sized firm? Maybe they're heroic and they're moving up the chain. Maybe they're ascendant. They grew at a great clip in the pandemic years and suddenly they're sort of flatlining. Is this a time to double down on these principles, pricing creativity, win without pitching, the natural, I think, human reaction of a services firm is to retrench to that shark mentality yeah. that's we've got to keep swimming to chase whatever revenue. We'll make it up in volume. It might not be the best or yeah. it will fall to the ocean floor. What advice do you have for them as we sit here? Again, not terrible. The bottom yeah. hasn't fallen out. Not There's great. caution in the market. Exactly. Right? It's caution. We, yeah. Sales cycles are extended. Clients are, exactly. as a procurement person was telling me the other day, the cost of debt is high. So instead of borrowing, clients are leaning on their supply chain, as unethical as that is, extending terms, et cetera. The sale that took X to complete now is looking at 2X. Some people are just deciding not to move forward on things at all. But there's no panic. There's just a lot of caution. So I think we're seeing that everywhere. I have some advice, but it's not worth anything. <laughs> so the advice is, being an advisor to agency owners for over 20 years now, I have seen that these principles that we espouse, whether they're around selling or whether they're around pricing, if you're early in applying these principles, as soon as there's an external condition like, oh, a really large prospective client, I would do the right thing here, but this is a really big client, so we're going to default to the old way. Or macroeconomic conditions, I would do the right thing here, but you know it's tough economic time, so I'm going to retreat back to my old behavior. My point of view is there's absolutely no excuse for that. For you to behave that way means that you're misunderstanding the principles and misapplying the frameworks that go with them. You don't understand that it's not 
this idea of win without pitching, if you just take the name, it's not, ah, sorry, we never pitch, we'll see you in hell. It's not that binary. There's nothing about either of these approaches that I advocate towards selling or pricing that should leave you worse off. All of them should leave you in a better position, but you don't know that until you've applied it long enough and you've taken these principles and frameworks and you've really understand them and made them your own. And then when you get to that place, the macroeconomic conditions won't really have an effect on how you sell or how you price. Now, pricing, of course, you might have an option in your proposal where you're extending more favorable terms. And that's another thing we could spend a whole episode talking about, but we won't go down that rabbit hole. So there's a little bit of flex on the pricing side, but the economy shouldn't change the way you show up in the sale. It might change some decisions about which client or project at which price you will take in this moment versus other moments. But the idea that, okay, we're trying to get away with pitching everything for free in an environment where we are not seen as meaningfully different, we are not the advantaged player. And in this macroeconomic condition, I think it makes sense to do this. Yeah, maybe, but you have to be careful. Like sometimes it's a little lie that you tell to yourself. Like my last agency job, I worked for um, a president and creative director. He was one of the most creative people I have ever met to this day. The portfolio of this firm was amazing. And doing new business, this was back in the day when the portfolio was mounted on boards. I would walk in. I just like, these things were silver bullets. If clients <laughs> saw the quality of our work, it was like we had the inside track most often. He kept saying, this is not me, the lonely biz dev person. This is the owner, president, and creative director. He kept saying, well, let's take this one for the portfolio. You know, when you're building a business, yeah, it might make sense to do that. But when you're 20 years in, you're one of the most creative firms on the continent, that's just a little lie that you tell yourself because as a creative person, you just really, really want to work on this account. So let's just ignore the commercial aspects of this, of whether or not this makes financial sense for us to do this or not. I just really, really want to do this. So let's just take this one for the portfolio. It's the same when you're making an exception for the economy. Yeah, sometimes your back is up against the wall. Any dollar is a good dollar. You have no power. You're going to pitch anyway. But you do that once. You do it twice. I'm fond of saying, you know, every once in a while we put our values aside and we prostitute ourselves. I think it's no big deal. I do it. You probably do it on occasion. You do it every day. You just have to accept that you're a prostitute. Yeah, the principles just go by the wayside. I think we've all experienced that a bit. I've been in shops where we attempted more commercial rigor and real structure around the power of no to clients. And then when presented with a massive potential win, where in the last go round with procurement, it said something to the effect of, we'd like to cut the fee by a seven figure sum. And the pushback is not, well, okay, then what deliverables are we going to cut? It's like, we can accommodate all of this with the same fee and we'll make it up in volume, right? It's that, yeah. that kind of idea. So what we don't understand is that's just a negotiating position that you're hearing. That's not the law of God handed down exactly. on stone tablets. Just that's say, just okay. a counter offer. You're in a negotiation. <laughs> this has been. A uh, fantastic episode, and I had a hunch it would be. We've gone from fax machines as a great <laughs> and maybe great retro form and uh, modality of communication to a word you've invented and introduced to the lexicon and wrapping with the world's oldest profession, which I think 
is the mark of a great conversation. I thank you profoundly for this, and I encourage our users to check out the books as well as the other podcasts. We'll give you a, a moment to plug that here at the end. But for us and for our listeners, we are going to wrap, and we do have a copy of Blair's book, Win Without Pitching Manifesto and Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour that we'll give away. The first people to reach out to us at podcast at Cantata will get sent a copy. It's a fantastic read. Great. You know, here in the East Coast, it's the annual beginning of our 90 days of summer. Um and poolside, beach, wherever wherever the summer takes you, great industry insights. I highly recommend that you send the email. We'll mail it to the first people that hit send. But Blair, give us and our listeners a sign-off perhaps with your podcast. They can check out as well around the thrilling topic and potentially cure for insomnia around procurement negotiations and navigating Ariba console cells, right, for the upload that always has to happen at the last mile. But really uh, a niche but phenomenally important topic so yeah that'd be great thanks for having me brent i've really enjoyed the conversation as i knew i would too so find out more at winwithoutpitching.com my podcast it's a mouthful 20 percent the marketing procurement podcast you can find at 20 percent.com the number 20 then the word percent.com i have another podcast uh, two Bobs, Conversations on the Art of Creative Entrepreneurship. That's the number two, B-O-B-S, twobobs.com. And if you want to find me, I'm Blair Anz on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks again, Blair. Thanks again to our listeners. As always, if anyone has follow-up questions for myself or Blair, please reach out to us at the same email address, podcast at cantata.com. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, let us know by giving the show a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform and leaving a comment. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, you can do so anywhere you get podcasts on any podcast app. And to learn more about the power of Cantata's purpose-built technology, go to cantata.com. Thanks again for listening.